The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. The best career advice I ever received came from my friend Nicolette. She was an older mentor, and at the time, she was actually also my boss. I was 25, and I was failing at this administrative job I had. I wasn't all that good at it, and my deficits were beginning to catch up with me. I wasn't really sure the job was going to work out, and I think Nicolette wasn't so sure either. But she was very sure of me. Nicolette had had lots of jobs in her life. She told me that there are three types of capital. There's social capital, there's educational capital, and there's economic capital. Nicolette told me that the money piece was the piece that people would worry about the most, and they shouldn't. That's the thing that will probably change the most. It will go up, it will go down. Educational capital is what I got when I landed my college degree. Once you have it, it's yours. Social capital, she told me, Well, that's the most important. The people you know and the ways in which you invest time and energy in your relationships will ensure that you continue to have a couch to sleep on, a person to call for help, a job reference. Today, we're talking about social capital. Our guest today is Susan McPherson. Susan was raised to see the importance of connecting people around a common idea. (laughs) She told me this one story when she was a child Her parents would sit at the breakfast table, and they'd each use a pair of scissors to cut out articles from the newspaper, which they'd slip into envelopes every day now, and they would mail those envelopes to people they knew. Susan just thought everybody's parents did that. What I'm saying here is that connection is in Susan's genes, and it's a big reason why she calls herself a serial connector. Susan wrote a fantastic book about this just a couple of years ago. It's called The Lost Art of Connecting. Today, we're going to talk about why connecting is so important, and Susan will teach us how to do it well. Here's Susan. Honestly, if you think about all the good things that have ever happened in your life, I guarantee about 90% of them came because of a connection Mm -hmm. that you made. Mm -hmm. And I often, when I'm talking to groups or meeting people, I will say, you know, think of the happiest thing that happened within the last week. What or who was responsible? But I also, I have worked and toiled in the trenches in social impact. And to make positive change in this world, you can't do anything without meaningful connections. And I don't mean transactional connections. So that's where I I see the vital importance. Mm -hmm. My theory, if you could call it one, is... Whenever we walk into rooms, whether they're virtual or in person, is first do a bit of a kind of self-audit to remind ourselves of what our superpowers are. Mm -hmm. And when we sit there and tell ourselves we don't have any, I beg to differ. Mm -hmm. Okay. And when you walk into a room, no matter who's in that room, you go with the attitude of how can I be helpful? Because when, first of all, everybody needs help. I don't care who you are. Right. And When you think about the superpowers you have and you are with several people that perhaps you don't know, when you make the conversation about ways you can be supportive, ways you can be helpful, ways you can make introductions, 
you then level the playing field so you're not feeling as insecure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, if more people did that, I think we wouldn't have the vitriol that we have. <laughs> uh, well, that whole idea of starting with how can I be helpful, yeah. it is the right place to build a personal relationship. Our good friend, Dory Clark, I'm sure she's a good friend of yours. Um, Adore her. She has such a skill at being a good friend to so many people. And she has a rule around connections that takes a very long-term thinking approach, which is she waits a year before she will ask somebody for something. So she makes a connection to you. She takes care of that relationship for a year before she will even begin to ask. I really love that because it takes the transactional nature of a connection down. It just turns the volume down on it, right? You know, um, oftentimes when I'm doing talks, I'll ask a show of hands in the audience and I'll say, how many of you have received a request to, I'm going to use the word connect on LinkedIn, Mm -hmm. and you say yes, and then within an hour, that person's selling you something and everybody's hands go up. So then I say, what if instead that person reached out and maybe did five minutes of research about you? saw that maybe you landed a new job, you moved to a new city, um, you were hiring, and instead wrote you and said, hi, Jesse, I understand you're doing this amazing podcast called Hello Monday. I have a friend who does a podcast called Hello Tuesday. Maybe you too. I'm being silly. But the point (laughs) being (laughs) is if somebody could just offer something before making the ask or Hold off making the ask until you like Dory. I mean, one year may be a bit long for a lot of people, but I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful kind of way to go about life. That makes me think about just the power imbalances that exist when we're building out connections, right? Some people are in a position where they receive a ton of asks. It's the host of a podcast. I receive more pitches than I could read, right? And some people are in the position where they need a lot. How do you address the power and balance in connecting? Well, that's a very good question. And first, I would say you're never going to respond to all of them. Okay. But I also know it isn't always about the immediate response. And I look at all of this as over the long haul. So for instance, when I meet people and I offer up to support, it, it may not be the next day or the next week. It could be over the next five years. And I also know that there are times in all of our lives when there's challenges or somebody is ill or somebody has lost their place of work, et cetera, where you can't be helpful, right? I mean, this is not about not taking the oxygen mask first, right? I think sometimes, you know, people assume I just run around rooms and just say, how can I help? How can I help? It's not that way. Well, how do you figure out the the size and volume of community to nurture, Right. I mean, you know, there's actually some Mm -hmm. anthropological research around this. Robin Dunbar has the Dunbar number suggests that the human capacity to be in community tops out at around 150. Exactly. And it's so individual. Right. So a lot of the research I did in my book was around, you know, what is what is like you're saying humanly possible, but also what are your goals? Right. And I think also sometimes we don't think about who is in our own community to then tap to connect with others. We're Mm -hmm. oftentimes afraid to ask those closest to us because we either fear, one, they're too busy, or two, we're putting them out. And I'm of the world that if somebody asks for an introduction, yes, I always request of the other person permission. But to me, 
we're making the world richer when we make introductions. And if I don't give, like if somebody asks me if they want to meet you, I would come to you. I would first ask. Right. But I would never be like, oh, absolutely not. I'm not going if she's too busy because your life could actually improve because of this introduction. Okay, let's just. Let's just play with that idea for a second because I actually think, Susan, that I I disagree with that slightly. Okay. I think that you have some social cachet on the line. So let's say somebody who has nothing to do with the world that I am a part of wants an introduction to me, wants a thing to me, asks you for it. Are you always 100% of the time going to going to broach me about making that introduction? No, obviously. But if the person, for instance, might be able to offer you or your family or someone you know something of interest, I would. But again, I would never not broach you, right? I'd always be able to give you the option. Right. Okay, so let's talk about boundaries a second. Because I think maybe the thing that I I can hear myself sort of getting at is – it is hard for me. I'm just taking me a self theoretical, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's say you come to me and you're like, you know, Jill over here wants an introduction. And I know that I actually can't afford an introduction to her right now. Yeah. I can't do well by yeah. that relationship. I'm not interested in it. It still is hard for me to set that boundary with you. I Got bet it. I'm not alone. Okay. And I think this is probably very gendered, mm-hmm. but I find it hard to say, no, thank you. Oh, interesting. Because I've had a lot of people say no when I've asked. Do yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Do you get better at, at, at the no's? Well, I don't take offense. I understand. Yeah. And this is my where my comment was, we're all in different phases in our lives, right? You're extremely busy right now. You have little ones at the very formative ages, right? Right. Um, right. You know, just wrote a book. I mean, it's a lot. But I think, you know, in five years, you may have more time, right? Yeah. So I just think some if, if, we, if we don't give people the opportunities because we feel we own these relationships, right. Right. Then, then we as the gatekeeper, you know, we're basically closing the door. Yeah. So yeah. I think, you know, just give people the opportunity to say no. Yeah. And if I ever come to you, I will remind you, you have the choice. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And yes. And I can't tell you how many people have said not now, maybe a year from now or, yeah. you know, no. And and that I don't change my opinion. Yeah. But what I like to do is be able to say, I don't own you. And who is it to me to say no? Because the person will find another way to get to you. Right. 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 I I mean, if somebody really wants to get to you, they will. Right. No, that's entirely right. But I'm also I mean, there have been times when people have come to me and I know the person is not in a good place to be asking. them. I'm not suggesting you're not in a good place, but I meant where it just wouldn't be the right time. And I'll say, let's table this. Let's bring it up six months from now. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Talk to me a little bit about the the relationship between connections and friendships. Yeah. There are many people that still to this day are like, I'm my work self and I'm my home self and there n- never shall the two meet and my friendships are not at work, etc. And, and I think, you know, because of the Internet, because of social media, I have seen those lines blur. Now, you're the first person who's asked me, though, like friendship versus connections. I would say friendships are deeper, more personal connections. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I can't know how many thousands of connections I have on, you know, on LinkedIn. I wouldn't call them all friends. Of course not. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't go on vacation with all those people. On. Right. <laughs> 
lot of well, friendship is a big and blurry word, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, I, you know, they, there's a Venn diagram between friendship and connection, yeah. I think. But I would tap my friends to build connections. Mm-hmm. And I would very much expect them to do the same. We're going to take a quick break here. When we come back, Susan and I are going to dig into how and if being of different ages matters to connection. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back. Before the break, Caesar and I were talking through some of the things that can hamper our connecting abilities. She mentioned time. I've also been wondering whether generational differences have any effect on our ability to connect. So often we use different technologies or different versions of that technology. Does that matter? I asked Susan for her thoughts. Well, one of the reasons I wrote the book or it put me over the edge to write the book is a dear friend of mine told me that um, when she took her 10-year-old and 12-year-old to the bus stop in the morning one morning, or actually every morning, and she'd hug them goodbye and send them up on the big yellow school bus, and both of them would take their respective seats. One was 10, the other was 12. The second they took their seats, their heads would bop down to look at their handheld devices. Here's the kicker, though. Every other child on the school bus did the same thing. And I thought to myself, Jesse, my school bus memories are not, you know, incredibly lovely and light. However, I talked to my schoolmates. So I do think we have a younger population that is, you know, coming into the workforce, coming into their professional worlds, having grown up literally staring at mobile devices. And I do think elder people, boomers and older, definitely came of age talking and having to be publicly engaged. And then, of course, you add the pandemic, which I think really had enormous effects on younger populations. So I do think we are creating kind of a have and have not, um, if, if, if that makes sense. But I do think those of us who are further along both in age and professionally have a responsibility to help show 
younger generations the importance of connecting Mm -hmm. in real life now that we obviously can, right? People sometimes say to me, how do I get my kids to get off the phone? I'm like, well, are you on the phone? You know, are you showing them the power and the goodness that can happen when, when you connect? Are you showing them by joining various maybe civic organizations or nonprofits? Even on occasion, you're actually going to meet people who don't look like you, right? And and connect with people who aren't the same age, race, and color as you. So I um, I think it's more helping people understand what the opportunities are when we meet people who aren't the same age, but we can go beyond and, and go mm-hmm. to gender and, and, and go to, to race and religion, et cetera. I will also say that being a woman who's 58 and not having children, it's interesting because my friends and my meaningful connections and maybe kind of just regular connections range from their 20s to their 70s. And it's because I wasn't growing for the last 30 years through my kids' education, right, and the PTA mm-hmm. and school organizations. Mm-hmm. So I think in some ways that's opened more doors mm-hmm. to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you have more flexibility. And yeah, so, yeah. and um, I was just talking to another friend who is in a similar situation, and he was talking about the way in which his life has allowed him to code switch because when you have that more flexibility, you can drop more easily into your friends' lives than they can drop into yours. And there's the upside to that. And then there's also the challenge to that, which is what belongs to you after all that period of time, right? I love that. Um, I love that. But there is so much upside to that. Yeah. Well, I just, it's also one of the things about being the age that I am now, where I learn so much more from young people, from technology, just from the way they, they look at the world. And I remember it must have been 10 or 12 years ago, my my friend Christina Vuletta started something called the 2040 Salons, where she would invite like 10 20-somethings and 10 40-somethings, maybe not that many people, but to come to, you know, for wine and and snacks. And she thought when she first established it, it was going to be the 40-year-olds telling the 20-plus-year-olds their experiences. And, of course, it was wildly different. Sure. Um, Sure. That makes a lot of sense. But I wonder if you might speak to the value of building those cross-generational connections because I think that that... That observation you made is how, unfortunately, most people perceive that it will go, which yeah, is yeah. us us older folks can yeah, tell you young yeah, kids something. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I just look at the 15 employees I have. In their, I mean, I have learned so much from younger people, but also from people in their 70s and 80s. You know, I was just reading an amazing Washington Post op-ed this morning about how Japan has gotten aging right and how... In the United States, we could learn so much more from not only how they respect elders. And I know your question isn't about specific adjuncts of age, but I just think we can learn so much from people not like us. Different age, different race, different religion, different gender. And not only just learn, but actually have more fun. Because <laughs> why do we only want to be with people that are exactly the same as us? I agree. <laughs> And now, you know, before we leave, and I'm just, oh. no, we got a few more minutes. So, I, yeah, I would like to get um, pragmatic for a few minutes, okay. right? So you are a serial connector. You are very good at it. What are the tools of the trade? Do you have spreadsheets you keep? Do no. you have digital Rolodex? Do you have no. notes to yourself to reach out to people on a certain cadence? Um, no, no, and no. 
um, I have a gift of a tremendous memory, which I realize doesn't offer your listeners Gosh, anything. I'm in trouble. Well, no, I mean, it, 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 it's scary how that has been a gift. You know, when, when you think of your superpowers, that I can completely now say with confidence. But a couple of things. I always have a notebook with me. Always. When I meet people, I take their photo so that I can then remember who they are. Because if I meet people at a party, then, you know, two weeks later, no memory. Okay. But if I have the photo, it will jog memory. Okay. Three, when I do meet somebody, and I know people are going to like gasp when they say this, I don't wait to follow up. And it may just be a voice text, you know, that I, or I'll put it in my calendar because I know what happens if I don't follow up right away. And when I do follow up, I don't just say, Jesse, it was nice meeting you. I'll say something, you know, I'll say, oh my gosh, that story you shared about your dad and the, the fires. Like I would make mention of something. Um, fourth, you know, I talked about like part, you know, sometimes technology can be bad. Technology can be our best friends. And every morning, religiously, I text or WhatsApp or Signal or email, sometimes leave a voicemail, but I will three to five people just to say hello and let them know I'm thinking of them. There's no spreadsheet. It's the three to five people that pop in my brain. And I do it when I'm like between shower and coffee, or I do it when I'm walking my puppy. And the goal of that is for nothing other than putting a bit of joy in the world. Mm-hmm. And when people say to me, Susan, how do you have time? I say, well, I have time to brush my teeth. And in the amount of time it takes to text three people or WhatsApp or whatever the mode that you feel is most appropriate will be uber fast. Now, what I would suggest to your listeners if they want to employ, you don't have to do all of these things, pick one and maybe just text one person a day. Mm-hmm. But I think when we know when we're on the receiving end of something like that, just somebody saying, I'm thinking of you. With no, you don't have to take action. You don't have to do anything. It's just kind of a nice way. Um, and I don't have a hidden agenda, honestly. It's more just because I know probably that there will be joy, but then I get some dopamine. Mm-hmm. Okay. But no spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> that was Susan McPherson. Check out her book, The Lost Art of Connecting. It's full of good stuff to help you do some of the things we talked about today. You know, Susan brings us so much wisdom, both in this conversation and just being in community with Susan. There are at least three things that I really hope you walk away from this episode thinking about. The first two are very pragmatic. First of all, Susan is in touch with a few people every day without an ask. She sends just a light text while she's on her dog walk in the morning. I love that idea. Second, she takes photos of people she meets and she wants to keep up with. Ingenious. Talk about a great way to jog your memory. And then there's this big picture idea. This idea of being helpful instead of asking for help, especially at the beginning of a connections relationship. I think this is so important. I think we can learn so much from this. People are much more willing to help you if you help them first. But even beyond that, there's this other thing, this other way of showing up in the world. You show up differently when you aim to be of service. This week on Hello Monday Office Hours, we're going to talk all about making solid connections with others. Join me and Hello Monday contributor Michaela Greer on the LinkedIn news page. We'll go live at 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday, like we always do. You can find the link in our newsletter or show notes. 
or you can send us an email. We look forward to having you join us. Before we roll our credits, it's time once again for a book segment with my friend and LinkedIn book editor, Scott Olster. Hey, Scott. Hey, Jesse. So, Scott, what are you reading these days? These days, I have picked up a book that's a little bit of an unusual book for me. It's, it's actually a book about books, and it's a collection of interviews by a man named Michael Silverblatt, and it's called Bookworm. And Bookworm is actually the name of a radio show that he has hosted for over 30 years. Uh, He put it on hiatus in 2022, but he gave us with this book, which is a collection of some of the most interesting, insightful, just kind conversations about fiction I've I've read. It's such a pleasant experience. Um, And a lot of it is a testament to Silverblatt and the way he approaches interviews. Let's talk a second about who Michael Silverblatt is, because I'm going to just tell you, I, I don't know. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that to you, but no, I don't know. No, I'm the same way. I was the same way. And, you know, I feel like this was like a hidden gem for me. And I wonder if it, it, it might be for others. So he's a bit of a funny guy. At first, he, I think, had ambitions to be a fiction writer himself. Uh, when he graduated from college, and he tried his hand at screenwriting. But then at a a dinner party, he struck up conversation with a radio station manager, and they started to talk very passionately about, of all things, Russian literature. And she offered him a radio show. Wow. He's not a journalist by training, and you know what? It shows, but in the best possible way. He's just a passionate, passionate reader. Right. And a curious human. Okay, and so these conversations, and I'm just looking at the books sitting between us on the table, um, it is a whole collection of folks. Are these transcripts? John Ashbery, Octavia Butler, wow, William Gass, Toni Morrison, Grace Paley. Yeah, these are selections of some of the best conversations he's had with these people. And these are like some of the like biggest names in literary fiction over the past century, let's say. And one key thing is that no, none of them are alive right now only chooses to have conversations with uh, authors and and, uh, who've written books that he likes. He's like a super fan when it comes to fiction. He's not doing the hard questions, let's say. Well, let me ask you, is there any major takeaway from this collection? Yeah, there are many different nuggets of wisdom that come through in these conversations. And one of the things that comes through, and this is a testament to Silverblatt's ability, he is making a group of people who are known for being incredibly private feel very comfortable talking about the inner workings of, of their craft. So one of the things that comes up quite regularly uh, is just how to deal with the fact that you and your abilities are going to change. Joan Didion, one of the people that he interviews in this collection, talks about how nothing, nothing is fixed. Nothing is stationary. You're always changing, and you always have to sort of come to terms with that and and let your work change with it. That was a powerful thought. You know, it's funny. That thought is really at the heart of what Hello Monday is about, right? We bill ourselves, right, as this show that is about how work is changing. But really what the show is about is how we have to be open to change even when we don't understand it. Of course. It's a scary thing, and it's a scary thing whether you're a writer or you're any other kind of professional just dealing with that change. But when you give yourself over to the fear, it's when the good stuff starts. Couldn't agree more. Scott, great to have you here. Can't wait for the next book review. Oh, thanks so much, Jesse. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show with help from Lolia Briggs. It's engineered by Asaf Gadron. 
Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Michaela Greer truly connects us all. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. I'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. Congratulations on the puppy. Thank you. Right now you could have the puppy. Tell me it gets easier. <laughs> How old? You know, I'm just going to say the puppy is almost eight months. And so we're cycling out of, I think, the hardest window. Um, but people say to me, uh, oh, a puppy is as hard as a baby. And I'm here to tell you, having had both in the last three years, that a puppy is harder than a baby. I promise you, or at least my puppy is.